All right. I am so excited to have Larry here today and just getting to know you through the people I know and then the research that I got to do. I have to say, like, you're probably one of the first people I've had on the podcast that I didn't have like a direct relationship before I started. But, you know, as John Rodriguez shared your story a little bit after we recorded his and I started looking into you, I was like, I got to have this guy on because you have such a unique trajectory of what you've achieved up to this point. And I love that mindset. You can just see it from the things that you're doing and moving and shaking, obviously getting into become a doctor and then be like this real estate, like mogul, if you will. And just doing the things that you're doing in the hiking world. It's just, I want to know the mindset, right? So I'm really excited to hear your story and dig into the things that make Larry tick, right? I really am. And so I'm just really thankful for having you on. Oh man, thanks so much, Ken. I've been looking forward to this ever since you invited me and ever since John told me about it. Uh, like you, I, I kind of thought I didn't know you, but Alaska is this funny place. It turns out we know each other, at least through mutual people. And I trained at your gym. And uh, But yeah, it's, uh, it's an honor to be here. Thanks for asking me. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, the first place that I always want to go is you know, story, right? So nine years Alaskan, you moved up here, I think, right? Originally, you grew up in Colorado, right? And then Utah, and you, and you were a doctor, right? You're an oncologist, right? Radiation oncologist, is that the right term? Yeah, exactly. I'm radiation oncologist, uh, moved to Alaska nine years ago. Uh, it's funny, my, my first career um, was at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. And um, I landed my dream job out of residency, and I was at this place in my life. I mean, I, you obviously work really hard to become a doctor and I disciplined myself to, to attain what I thought was success. And um, I remember this moment of, of being on a plane to Europe to speak at this international meeting. And before I got on the plane, um, I'd stopped at one of those newsstands and I grabbed a magazine quickly to have something on the plane. And I'm thumbing through this magazine um, and there was this advertisement that just like jumped off the page. I don't know if you've ever had an experience like that where something just pops off the page at you. It was actually of this woman on a dog sled um, in this Arctic wilderness, and it was advertising for this competition. And if you won this competition, you had to make a video to say why they should select you. Then they would give you this all-expense-paid trip uh, to go to Scandinavia and mush dogs. And really what um, that touched my heart, because ever since I was a little kid, I had dreamed of actually competing in the Iditarod, which back now, now it seems to make sense to people. But back then, I mean, this was 2013, 2012. I'd never been to Alaska, never been on a dog sled, uh, but I'd had this like impossible dream ever since I was a little kid. Turns out I won the contest, um, got to, had this incredible experience. Um, but I came back to Florida and I just, I had this angst, felt deeply unfulfilled it was like I realized that this adventure side of myself, that I always had these dreams and aspirations of fulfilling through all the years of medical school and residency, um, and now as a busy academic physician, there was just this little ember of that left. And this contest, it was like, it was like blowing on that ember. And I was afraid to kind of blow on it because of what that could mean. Uh, but turns out I blew on it. And that's what landed us in Alaska. It was a, it was a, a year later, uh, we moved up here. And uh, I really came up here not only for it for a fantastic job opportunity, uh, but to chase this impossible dream of, of doing the Iditarod. That is amazing. So 
year after contest, you're up here, you're practicing oncology up here, correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so once you're practicing oncology, but now you have this ember that's lit and you have this adventure that you want to go on. The goal is, is it now Iditarod, like racing the Iditarod? Yeah. So I, I started beating the bushes right after we moved up here, reaching out to any musher that would talk to me. Um, most of them didn't return my calls or my emails. I'm sure they get a lot of, a lot of crazy contacts like that. Uh, but one did, and it was a, a physician. Uh, his name's Jim Lanier. He's a retired pathologist. He also had roots at the Mayo Clinic where I had come from. And so I think that's why he answered my call. Uh, it invited me actually to a book signing at Walgreens. He had just published this book. And I go and I meet Jim Lanier. And uh, one thing led to another. He invited me to come visit his kennel. And I just kind of didn't go away. I kept kept coming by and helping out. And uh, it turns out that he became this important mentor in my life and, and helped me qualify for the Iditarod. Wow. And so 2014, you're in Alaska, you're helping out Jim. And then when was the first year that you raced in the Iditarod? That was two years later in 2016. And so when you race in the Iditarod, is this like you now are getting a property, accumulating dogs, like talk me through that process. Cause I mean that, I mean, when I think of it and I'm a born and bred Alaskan, like I, I mean, I used to, you know, if, if either of these guys listen to this, but Jim and Roan Boozer, Martin Boozer, which is a famous, oh, yeah. rod from here for a long time. I used to play paintball with them on a sponsored paintball team back in the day. Oh, and so no I way. was always going over to their house and see, and like the, the operation that that is. And so I just like go, like, did you go to that? Like of a level? Yeah, good questions. Th- th- those are those are real mushers, and um, I, uh, I mean, keep in mind, I was working full time still as a as a physician, and and my wife and my family were kind of putting up with Dad's dream here. It was enough that they came to Alaska, uh, and the and the idea back then actually was we'll go to Alaska long enough to pay off student loans. Um, and for dad to get this crazy idea out of his system, you know, but, um, no, I did not, um, get my own kennel, which is what most mushers do. Um, I partnered with uh, Mitch Seavey. Uh, I was another big, big name musher and, um, and leased dogs basically from him to do the Iditarod. That is insane. That is amazing. And so walk me through like what, like, the preparation for something like that. Now I, this is why I'm super excited because it's such a different Avenue, but I think it's so transferable to like business and life. And so this vision of racing in the Iditarod two years, you know, versus what you thought the Iditarod was going to be prepping up to it versus what it was. Like, I'm sure there was a lot of stark differences to what your mind thought it was versus what the action actually took as you know, that you say go on day one of I did a rod. Yeah. I think my, my personality has always been a little bit of ready fire aim. <laughs> um, that was true. When I decided to become a doctor, I didn't really know what that meant. I had no idea the pathway that was going to be in front of me. I just said I was going to do it and I figured it out and I did it. Um, that was true with the Iditarod, uh, with climbing. Um, but yeah, I mean, there is a lot of suffering involved with mushing. Um, those moments where it's just you and your dog team with the Northern lights out in the middle of Alaska all by yourself, um, are incredible, but 99% of the time you're out there suffering. Uh, but those, those, those moments that you walk away with are so sweet and so long lasting that somehow that's what you remember and you forget all of the suffering and then you find yourself doing the race again. <laughs> right. How many times did you do it? Five. Five times. Did you yeah. complete it all five? Um, I scratched one time in 2020 um, when COVID happened and it also happened to just be 
one of the worst years for for mushing. There was a lot of a lot of scratches that year, but yeah, fin- finished it four times. So in that experience, right? Like no technology, no devices. You're just out there in nature. And how long from start to stop was the Iditarod for you? Like it ranged, like first, like best best run, worst run. Yeah, roughly between ten and ten and eleven days. Right. So ten and eleven days, completely in your own thoughts. Right. You and the dogs. Yeah. What were some things that were big takeaways from you in that experiment? Uh, was it just that all the suffering and those glimpses of greatness are all that you remember? So keep pushing forward. Or were there other big things that you learned about yourself in those moments? Honestly, I think what what resonated when I saw that ad pop off on the page and what it's all meant for me is it's just this feeling of ultimate freedom. Um, being out there all by yourself and and the confidence to be able to to do something like that in the in that harsh environment but there's just something so freeing i don't know people that ride motorcycles or um or live in alaska you know i think can probably just resonate with that with that feeling but that's that's what it's what it's all about for me okay and so i mean what up to 2020 scratch are you going to do it again? You know, what's, what's the plan around that? Oh man, I knew you were going to ask me that. Um, I don't know that I have a, have a plan other than my son. Uh, it's really cool. My son is 20. Uh, he qualified for the Iditarod this year. Whoa. Yeah. Um, so he did, um, uh, I don't know how much you know about the qualification process, but basically you have to do some mid distance races. So you have to do at least two 300 mile races. So he did this race called the Copper Basin 300, and another one called the Willow 300. And so it was super fun to be able to be part of that on the other side of the table. And I got to be his handler in those races. And so I think right now I'm just excited to see his progress. I think someday maybe I would love the opportunity to do it again, but it's not like a a concrete plan. I feel very, very satisfied with the experience that I've had. Yeah, no, that's amazing. So where did climbing come in all this right because we haven't even scratched the surface of your climbing journey right so was that simultaneously did it come along of you being out and like seeing the northern lights and seeing mountains and be like man i wonder what it's like to go up to the top of one of those like how did that work yeah so always have been passionate about the outdoors i was a boy scout when i was a little kid i think that's probably the first time i went rock climbing and it just totally lit me up um as i uh, embarked on my medical journey. It so happened that during my residency, um, there was another resident my year uh, that was really into climbing. And that's when things just kind of really took off. Um, he and I became best buddies. Um, I had never done any mountaineering. I'd done a little bit of rock climbing, some ice climbing, but mountaineering is is a different objective. He invited me to uh, to do a climb of Mount Rainier. Um, that was in 2010. It was the first like big mountain that I did. Um, and he and I were early in our medical training, um, and we had this idea of taking prayer flags with us, like those Tibetan prayer flags, um, as a gesture to our patients. Like we were going to be gone from the clinic. Our patients had asked us, like, "What are you guys going to be doing?" And they were really interested. Like, "Oh, that's really cool." And we thought it would be cool to write their name on the flag and get a picture at the top. Um, It's just like a gesture we were thinking of you kind of thing. We were really surprised at how meaningful that small little gesture was uh, to our patients. And actually that that one experience was what um, led to us forming this nonprofit called Radiating Hope. Um, And it's, uh, it's a nonprofit centered around improving access to radiation oncology services in developing countries. 
So we actually, we organize several climbing trips per year, places like Mount Kilimanjaro, uh, Everest Base Camp, Machu Picchu. And we take primarily people that have no climbing background on this adventure of a lifetime. And the whole thing also raises money for a great cause. Um, and we take these prayer flags. It's, it's still our primary fundraising vehicle. Uh, so um, it's partly been because I, I love it. And it's also kind of taken off because of this, this nonprofit interest. Yeah. And so in climbing and in that trek, you know, what, what would you say is one of the most challenging things, both physical, mental, you know, is it the prep, you know, like what, what things would you say are the most challenging in that, you know, journey? Uh, that's a good question. I think that I've, I've learned, um, a lot of hard lessons, uh, in climbing. I think, um, I, early on I, I was the type of person that wanted to have way too many things in my backpack. Um, I'm like overly prepared. And so just the, just the process of knowing, um, being able to triage what kind of gear you need, what you don't, um, the fitness, how to train the right way. Um, I've trained the wrong way several times for expeditions. Um, so, but I think as opposed to mushing where, um, it mushing is a lot more mental. You can actually be pretty, um, in, average shape and still completes uh, a long distance race. But climbing, you need to be in top physical condition to, to, to conquer some, some large objectives. So I think they're, they're different challenges. So you're saying that I did a rod is more mental than even a climb. Yeah. Right? So climbing's more physical. I did a rod's more mental. Yeah. I did a rod's a dog race. The dogs are doing the physical work. It's, it's physical. Um, right. But you're kind of holding on and suffering. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, yeah. I mean, you might get a lot colder than they are because they're moving hard and you're not I mean, That's in exactly a way. Right? right. Yeah. So what's, because I can only imagine, I've done, you know, major hikes in Alaska, like Piner Peak being, you know, one, and that's a big hike for me. And that's like a, a day and a half hike, yeah. you know, really. But nothing outside of that. A lot of hunting trips with massive, you know, endurance requirements to do those. But never have I done anything like that. And so, like, what's the mental process? Because I can only imagine, like, the, you know, take a break, you know, you know, what, you know, get to this spot, take a break, but then maybe the environment's not the best place to take a break. Like, how do you navigate those mental processes as until you get to the top, right? Because there's a lot of delayed gratification as you work your way to the top. Yeah, it's um, in these expeditions that take weeks, you know, Denali, Everest, um, you're, I think a lot of people don't understand you're, you're not just like climbing directly to the top. There's a, there's a lot of what we call climb high, sleep low. So you're, you're, you might be going up and ferrying a load to a camp, uh, dropping some supplies and then coming back and sleeping. Sometimes you're going to be weathered out in your tent and kind of, you know, waiting out a big storm. So you're kind of climbing the mountain multiple times. Right. <laughs> uh, so I think part of it is, is having a, having a plan. Part of it is, uh, some good luck with, with weather. Um, and, and part of it is, is just, preparation both yourself personally and with your team yeah i can only imagine prep is got to be the weather you know the resources the tools the path like all of those things like you know it's totally probably like a slow down to speed up kind of thing right yeah i think that's that's a great way to say it yeah so when it comes to climbing because you have climbed everest kilimanjaro denali you know what is probably one of the biggest learning opportunities through failure that you've experienced in those 
you know, climbs. My very first mountain, Mount Rainier, um, I, I remember in the parking lot going through gear with, uh, with my friends, most of all of whom were way more experienced than I was. Um, and I had all of this obnoxious stuff in hindsight with this monstrosity of a backpack. And I had trained, I, I did, do you remember the program P90X? Oh yeah. <laughs> I did P90X, which was the wrong type of training for that type of an endeavor, but I had really dedicated myself to this. Um, and I remember asking one of my buddies, I had this like backup emergency shelter and I was like, do you think I should bring this? And he's like, how much does it weigh? And I'm like, I think it weighs three pounds. He's like, if you want to bring it, yeah, go ahead, throw it in. And uh, like, there was, I didn't need it. There was a hut, there were tents and I, I wanted to bring this like emergency backup bivy sack just to give you an idea of how much garbage I had thrown in my backpack. My, I mean, my backpack literally probably weighed 75 or 80 pounds. And um, I slept this thing on, and we were going up uh, this section called the Muir Snowfield, which is just this long slog to get to the first the first camp. And we got to an elevation of about eight, uh, just shy of nine thousand feet. And I had been feeling a little lightheaded because I was carrying way too much stuff, and the elevation was starting to kick in. And I just collapsed in a pathetic heap. I, I saw stars. I just about blacked out. And I just remember laying there and looking up at my buddies. And I mean, I, I just about lacked the strength to even stand up. And one of my friends um, grabbed my backpack, put it on, on his back in addition to his backpack, my 70, 80 pound pack. And he's like, come on, let's go. And I got to my feet and we got maybe like, I don't know, 50, 100 feet outside of camp. And they let me salvage a little pride because they knew there were other climbers in camp and they gave me my backpack at that point in time. Um, and so, yeah, it, I think that was the most humiliating moment um, athletically that I've ever had in my life. But I learned the most from that moment in climbing for sure. Yeah. So you know, in the experience of preparation for the journey, how do you prepare now versus then, you know, that makes things simpler, makes it, you know, easier to make decisions like that because it's a life or death, you know, decision, right? Like, do you take this? Do you not, you know, how do you apply that on, you know, both climbing, but other everyday life, that, that preparation lesson that you learned through that failure? Yeah, there's just no substitution for experience. I mean, most of the lessons that I have learned, I, th I feel like I've learned the hard way and just by trial and error and by um, learning to surround, my, surround myself with the right people, um, ask the right questions, be humble and open to advice. Um, you know, and when you're climbing a big mountain, you, you, you're roped to other people. It's your rope team. And the reason that you rope yourself to other people is, um, if, if there's a crevasse and one of you falls in it, your rope team is going to be able to hopefully help you not get swallowed by that crevasse. Right. And I think there's a lot of parallels to that, whether it's a dog team taking you across Alaska or whether you're roping yourself up to other people, you are the average of the five people you surround yourself with, right? And um, I've, I've learned that lesson um, both in sports and, and also in life. Yeah. No, that's, I mean, that's so true, right? The birds of a feather flock together. Yeah. You know? And the, the better that they are, you know, I've always said, like, I never want to be a big fish in a small pond, right? I'd much rather be small fish in a big pond because that's going to make me grow. Totally. Know? So I love that. So tell me about, so if you're in this group, Kilimanjaro, right? You're going in May, right? Is the next yeah. time you're going? You're bringing not experienced hikers. 
Yeah. So talk to me through that element of, cause it's one thing to, you know, have that experience prep for yourself. It's a whole different experience than to lead others. And so you've been doing this now for a while. And so what were the new challenges that exposed themselves to you in that first time, maybe that you brought an unexperienced group of hikers up a mountain? Yeah, it's bittersweet because if you're going to take substantial time off to do an expedition like that, there's a, there's a large part of me that would rather do something that would be much more challenging for me, right? Than do Kilimanjaro for the, this will be the fourth time. But I'm taking my son. And I also hearken back to that experience that I had on, had on Mount Rainier where a group of experienced guys took me on this objective that I wasn't necessarily ready for and it changed everything for me. And so I have been very intentional. In fact, I, I, I every year or two take, take a group of beginners on Mount Rainier and I, I have that on the calendar as well in May. And it's kind of the way that I pay back uh, because that's what others did for me. But um, Kilimanjaro... Um, it, it, these radiating hope trips are just, it's such an awesome group of people because what leads people to sign up for a trip like that, um, the, the type of people that come, um, it's, it's no longer really about the mountain. It's about the experience and the relationships that you form on the mountain. And each of these, each of these expeditions kind of turns into like a miniature lifetime, just like you have ups and downs in, in a life. Um, in that one week, there's so many ups and downs and turmoil and success. You just forge these deep uh, relationships with people when you share such an intense experience like that. So it's almost like you experience this little mini lifetime together in a short period of time. Yeah, I can only imagine the relationships that have been formed through that have been everlasting probably since yeah. those, right? How many people have you led up mountains? Hundreds. Um, Kilimanjaro alone probably to 200 people. Um, uh, and then I, I've led trips all over the world, um, whether it's in Nepal or South America. Uh, I've been fortunate to climb all over the place. Wow. So what's the biggest group that you've taken? Oh, man. We had a, in 2017, my first attempt uh, of Mount Everest, we had almost 100 people uh, trek to Everest Base Camp with us. Um, that's more of a trek. Right. Um, and then maybe a third of those climbed this um, legitimate uh, mountaineering endeavor called Lobuche, um, which is almost like the Nepal equivalent of Denali. Um, so that's probably the biggest one. Wow, 100 people. I mean, in a journey like that, when you're responsible, right? Is it just you? Or there's got to be several people that are responsible for that group of 100, right? Yeah, yeah. Is there like some sort of plan B, like can, I can only imagine a people, hundred people even going to base camp of Everest, hundred people start. I don't think a hundred people make it to base camp or am I wrong on that? And is there like some sort of like tail off group that has to know that at certain points you're going back down with a group of people? Yeah. For most of the trips where we, we take beginners, there has to be a plan B, whether that's descending on their own, uh, with a, with a porter or a guide, um, or in Nepal, helicopters are, are pretty liberally available. So we, we had a couple of people that had to be evacuated from higher elevations by helicopter. And that's just a numbers game. It's just odds. Some people are not going to acclimate as well as others, despite their best preparation physically. Um, their body just doesn't cooperate. Do you have any experiences through the journey of leading others? You know, and I'm going to try to connect this to a business thing because that's a big part of what I love talking about. But like where you were so impressed by someone's ability, both mentally or physically, where, where they were, maybe when you were going into it, to where they ended. 
I would love for you to maybe share that. I can only imagine you had someone who are like, that person's not going to make it. Or that person, it like, you know, maybe day in is like this, there's no way they're going to make it. But then what they were able to do in themselves and get to the top. Do you have any stories of that? Uh, I can think of so many, but um, I've been fortunate to climb with some of my own patients, um, like have hit me up. Hey, I really want to get involved with Radiating Hope or they've learned about it online. Like, can I join this trip? And I had this patient years ago, um, actually here in Alaska, who grew up in Zimbabwe. His parents were like missionaries. Like he was, you know, American, but grew up over there. And he was at the end of his life. I mean, he had a, um, a very difficult cancer that was widely metastatic and a, a, not a good prognosis. And he, he found out that I was doing Kilimanjaro and he said to me, you know, this is a lifelong dream of mine. I've always wanted to do it. Do you think I can do it? And I was like, I'm actually not sure. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm not sure if it would be the best decision for you. And he's like, it, it would mean everything to me. So we, we, we worked together, um, going into it with eyes wide open, that chances of success were, were pretty small. There was a lot of medical concern in me as a doctor for him going, but it also just meant so much to him. He was okay with going over there and, and possibly dying on the mountain. Um, but he really wanted to do this. And so we went, I, I did not think that he was going to make it to the top. Uh, but watching him, I mean, the group would get to camp and then about two, three hours later, he would get to camp. Um, and that was true every single day. And then on summit day, like the main group summited and on our way down, you know, pretty close to where we started, there he was slogging upwards. And I, I remember um, being with him and, and um, uh, encouraging him to turn around at that point. Um, he didn't turn around and he ended up, ended up making it to the top. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really amazing what, what people can push through uh, mentally, but as, as well as physically. Is there any common traits that you notice in people that are able to push like that, like given his situation or other, you know, in these types of experiences where you meet someone, you know, cause I can only imagine the conversations, meetings, you know, you probably there's prep, right. Even into leading a group. Is there certain things that you notice in certain types of people that you confidently know that they're going to be do well in this type of, you know, expedition? I, I really think it's mindset. Um, uh, and I think that's true in the mountains. I think it's true in life that it's it's typically 80% mindset and 20% strategy or 20% physical. Um, I think you can tell by the story that people are, are telling themselves that sometimes you get glimpses to as they talk out loud. Um, I have a spiel usually at the, at the highest camp on Kilimanjaro, which is when people are feeling the elevation the very most. And you have to get up at midnight to do this alpine start uh, to push through the night. And you're just feeling awful. And um, so I tell people at dinner time because I know they're going to wake up at midnight and in their warm sleeping bag when it's time to, uh, to get ready. And, and they're going to feel terrible. They're going to have that headache. They're going to feel fatigued. And I always tell people, nobody quits in their sleeping bag. Like you're going to wake up, you're going to feel bad. At least tell yourself right now, you're going to get up, you're going to get dressed. And even if you quit hundred, hundred yards outside of camp, you're not going to quit in your sleeping bag. And I feel like, um, if you can tell yourself the right story and kind of program yourself in the right way, we just, we self-select ourselves out of so many things when we, when we give in to these 
these negative thoughts that are automated in our brain. Like our brain wants to tell us negative things, and it's it's the people that give in to those or don't don't ask the right questions. Um, uh, in, instead of I I can't do that, it's how can I do that? You know, whatever the impossible thing is, whether it's a business, whether it's a mountain, um, it's just asking yourself the right question and telling yourself the right story. There's so many things to take away in that. You know, first like. I love the mindset. No one quits in their sleeping bag because <clears throat> it's amazing. Once you just take that first step, it, how much easier things start to become, but then framing too, right? Using your own thoughts and shifting your own perspective to do it. Right. You know, because I think a lot of times my stitch on that is a lot of people use the word hard and there's a negative connotation to that word. Yeah. But I believe hard is one of my favorite things. Like I get goosebumps when I think about hard because I love the challenge, right? I love, I, I love, you know, when it's something so hard that I have to recheck my own mindset. And it, I think just getting people to frame questions correctly, like you're talking about, or in the way that it gets their best uh, foot forward, you know, to at least not quit in their, their sleeping bag. So I love that. Is there a mindset of people that you see as a commonality? Is it the story that they tell themselves or is, is there something else mindset wise or habitual that you've noticed in people that they're the ones that struggle the most? Is it that story? Yeah, I, I, I really do believe that that's it. Um, just like you said, um, reframing what hard means, you know, there's hard where this is hard, this, this is hard and therefore I hate it. And so I'm going to recoil and right. therefore I'm going to give up or this is hard, man, I'm, I'm going to lean into this and I, it, it makes it that much more of a challenge and that much more meaningful. And, um, I think that that's the mindset that you see, you see play out. That's amazing. That is just amazing. And so you're got, so May you're doing Rainier and Kilimanjaro. Yeah, so Rainier is really just a weekend climb, like Friday through Monday. I'm taking my daughter. That was that was the impetus for that was she she wanted to do it. She's 16, um, and she wants to do Rainier. And then in late May, uh, taking my 11 year old son um, and a group of we've got about 35 uh, going up, including our mutual friend John. He's yep. going. Yeah, I'm proud of him. Yeah, we got to get. I was talking to him. His hips bother him. So John, get that yeah, hip fixed, dude. Man. Come on, man. Um, so what's the hardest climb you've done? Ama de Blom. I don't even know where that is. Ama de Blom is a mountain in the Himalaya in the Everest region in the Khumbu Valley. Um, it is, oh man, you, you'll have to Google a picture of it. It's like one of the most aesthetic, beautiful peaks in the world. Um, and it's a mountain that was never on my radar until I did Everest the first time. It's way harder than Everest. Um, you walk past it on your way to Everest, and it's just this intimidating, dominant mountain that, that comes out of the earth. Um, and the, what makes it so hard is it challenges all of your skill sets as a climber. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a high elevation. It's, a, it's around 23,000 feet. So just shy of where you would need oxygen, but nobody uses oxygen on Ama de Blom. That makes it hard. Um, it's, it's technical from a, from a rock standpoint. Like you got to have some rock skill. You got to have a, some ice climbing skill. Um, very exposed, like these camps. Um, sometime you'll need to like Google image camp to Ama de Blom to see what I'm talking about. Because these camps are, these little tent platforms are just carved in these precarious I mean, hardly big enough for even a tent. Right. Um, but yeah, I uh, th that mountain, 
did that in, I think, 2019, if I remember right. Um, interesting story from that mountain. So I had done Denali um, that year with my son as his uh, senior trip. He had just graduated from high school and he wanted to climb Denali. Got home from Denali and um, dried out my gear like I always do. And, and I'm neurotic about taking the liners out of my mountaineering boots. These boots are like usually three layers and you got to pull them all apart to dry them. Well, I wasn't so neurotic when I packed for Ama de Blom and I threw my boots in not knowing that I hadn't put the liners back in. The liners are what give you warmth. Okay. And I had already chosen a boot on Ama de Blom that was a little skimpy compared to what most people choose. So the lack of having a liner, and I didn't figure this out until I was at Camp 3, which is right before summit night, go to put on my mountaineering boots for the first time, and there's no liner. So some problem solving with my tent mate, we actually uh, pieced together a system that we that we thought would work and thought would keep my feet warm enough and managed to get to the top. But yeah, there was just there was a lot of challenges. I'm into Blom. That is that is crazy. Any any like bucket list ones that are still you know out there for you? Yeah, I've had this uh, this goal to do the seven summits, um, which is the highest mountain on each continent. Um, I have been on five of them and I've summited four. So I, I, I didn't successfully summit Aconcagua. Um, uh, so I need to redo that one. And then uh, probably the biggest one that I have left expense-wise and commitment-wise is Mount Vincent on Antarctica. Sorry, Antarctica. Um, so th- those are definitely still bucket ones. I love it. Have you been to Antarctica? I haven't. I haven't either, but mentors of ours have been there and it just... I mean, being from Alaska and then you see the pictures, it just looks unbelievable. Yeah, it's otherworldly. I, I can't wait to make it there. Right, right. Okay. So I think a perfect segue for me is is that this, this life of adventure, all the places that you're going, I can promise you there's people living listening right now that are like, where, okay, wait, how does he do this, right? So you're a doctor, but you're not a, you're a part-time doctor, right? So talk to me about the story that goes from Iditarod to Hiker. And obviously there's, these are, there's a lot of overlap here. I can only imagine, but I'd like to hear it from you. Is What has created this, this time equity that you have to be able to do these types of life experiences? That's a good question. I get asked that all the time. Like, How do you find balance in your life to, to do this as a father of five and a physician and all these adventures that you go on? And um, I think the real answer is I, I don't have an answer. I don't know if there is like balance at any given time. I hope that over the course of my life, I, I have that balance and I've spent enough time with my kids and I've leaned into my profession and I've, and I've been able to do these great things. But I'll tell you, I am a believer in what's called Parkinson's law where, um, as you, I can't remember the exact verbiage of Parkinson's law, but basically as you, as you, um, lean into more opportunities, it's like the universe open ex- expands in a way that, um, that, that you're able to, to meet the thing that you commit. Um, and I think that I just found that to be true. I'm, I'm somebody that actually does better when I'm busier and i the more I fill up my calendar, like the more I just find a way to get more done. Right. Um, so I, I guess that's the best answer I have for that. Yeah, you and I are very similar in that. I had one of my employees really thank me uh, because they said they were so taken back by a phrase that I used, you know, because I manage a lot of people, I juggle a lot of things. 
And I just, like, at one day when I, I dropped something and she was like, we dropped this. And I was like, it's not a big deal. And she was like, it is a big deal. And I was like, no, listen, I'm a person that will spin 15 plates and I'm okay if six drop. Yeah. Like I really am because at the end of the day, I believe it will all even out because yeah. when I'm getting these, you know, other ones over here, these nine to be amazing, I'm going to be able to pick these up, put them back together and they're going to be amazing too. Cause I agree with you. There is no balance. I think that there's, there's focus. And I think that if you give it your all to something, you feel fulfilled and then you can go, go focus to something else. Cause if you're not intentional, what you end up doing is just feel spread and then you don't get any fulfillment from anything. I think that's so true. And I think that, um, I, I had to do a lot of mindset work around those broken plates, like those six that fall. Like the more things you endeavor to do in your life, if you're somebody that's trying to do a lot of things, then you're going to experience more failure than other people, right? And so understanding that, being okay with that in business, in life, like you're going to, you just have to understand that's part of what you are what you are intending to do and that things are going to go wrong. And, and when they happen, not not being surprised by it, but being okay with it and understanding that your failure is what's going to propel you forward. Yeah. Is there anything that you've done to work on the framing for yourself or shifting the questions that you ask yourself or the story you tell yourself around failure? Oh man, I, th- I think that that it's, it's a constant thing. I think it's just, it's natural for everybody to go negative in their head, you know? Um, so it's, it's something I'm constantly working on. Yeah. Is there anything you're working on right now? Hmm. Around failure specifically? Yeah, or just working on shifting your framing. Like, is there anything specifically that you're like, you? I mean, this is a vulnerable question, right? But like, or or a humbling question, is there anything like specifically that you want to grow in and you know that that there's an opportunity to push yourself in that, to frame or ask yourself or tell yourself a story that's going to help you get to the next level? Yeah, so I I went to this event um, last year. I'm sure you've heard of Tony Robbins. Okay. Um, I went to this event called Unleash the Power Within. Um, and it was in Florida and I don't know, I'd, I'd always had maybe a little bit of skepticism about Tony Robbins. It seems almost a little bit cultish. <laughs> um, you have, you walk on fire and stuff. And so I'd, I'd heard some, some positive and some negative about it, but this event was so mind blowingly awesome. Like it, I really walked away, like feeling like I could walk through buildings and just do anything. And there were like very concrete goals that I walked away from. This was in November of last year. Um, like I wanted to write a book and I wanted to start this coaching program. Um, and I, and I walked away saying, I'm, I'm no longer okay with the version of Larry that has keeps putting these things off. Like I'm going to start playing the guitar. I'm going to write the book. I'm going to launch the coaching program. But as I've leaned into those things, it's like, as you do it, naturally you're filled with some doubts and some days like enormous self doubts. Um, and I, and I think that that's, that's normal. Like, um, as we lean into a new identity, like birth is painful, right? And so like transformation is painful. And I think just understanding that, but yeah, no, I, I grapple with self-doubt all the time. I've just launched this big coaching thing where I'm coaching other physicians and I put this thing out on social media and I expected that I'd have like 20 or 30 people respond, but I had like hundreds and like, that's exciting. And it's also terrifying because now it's like, okay, now I really need to deliver this amazing thing to these people that obviously have high expectations of me. And so like, I don't know, we can be victims of our own success and we can, we can, um, you have to find a way to thrive on that and, and push through it and have it just 
improve you, but also just recognize that that that's normal. Any sort of like um, transformation that you're going to, going to undergo is is going to be a little bit painful, right? I don't know if you're familiar with Alex Hermosi. He's a, he's a well-written marketer and you know gym guy that I have followed for a long time. And he, I can't remember what the source was, but I, I believe in this because it, it's true to what you were just saying there is, is that anything new only takes about 20 hours to get momentum. Mm. So anything new, playing a guitar, writing, if you're going to write a book, um, you know, wh- you know, starting this coaching program is you only have to get 20 hours into something before you have a momentum. Yeah. The, and the problem is, is people wait forever to start that 20 hours. But if you just like, okay, I'm going to do this, I'm going to give it 20 hours and then I will, you know, put it off or then I'll allow self doubt or, you know, you know, whatever it is. And ultimately, even if you give yourself that 20 hours, even if it's something like you don't even like, so it's like, Hey, I want to be a blogger. And so I'm going to write a blog. I'm going to post it. I suck at writing. But even if you go through that full thing for 20 hours, at the end of the day, you committed something to so long that you gain something very valuable that's going to go and apply into the next thing. And I just, I believe in that so much in a day and age where people are so distracted and they're so just all over the place that they don't do anything long enough to actually get something from it to go apply it to the next. A thousand percent. I I have a lot of uh, physics in my training as a radiation oncologist. And um, just as you were think, as you were talking, I was just thinking about the initial inertia needed to gain momentum. Like there's there's a lot there, but once you once that movement starts, like it's easier to keep it going, right? But yeah, it's just the pain of getting of getting started. Yeah. So I mean, not to shameful plug, but I gotta hear about this, and I doubt that in my listener base that I have a lot of doctors, but I want to hear about this this coaching program that you're doing because it's specifically for doctors, right? To be able to live this life of freedom and have time freedom and stuff. And so, just give me some of the points on that. Yeah, I, like if I, you can, if you can, like I totally. Get oh it. no, totally. Uh, I niched this thing out so much that I I didn't know how much of a market that I'd have. Like I'm, I wanted to coach specifically physicians not and not just physicians but physicians that are already experienced in real estate um, have some experience in multifamily real estate specifically and who want to scale into larger commercial multifamily real estate so um, it's really been a passion project of mine more than anything like it actually doesn't make a lot of financial sense for me at this point I could make more by being a physician I could make more uh, by investing on my own but like the discovery of real estate and what it's meant for me. Um, this this country actually has a real epidemic on its hand uh, in, in terms of physician burnout, um, surprisingly. Um, COVID did a real number on doctors. Um, and I, on a daily basis, talk to physicians that... Um, that want to leave medicine, um, that are just traumatized from from what was asked of them, from feeling like they put their lives at risk. Like when COVID first uh, was a thing, we didn't know how dangerous it was, but physicians were like on the front lines of this, right? And at the same time, um, some of them being furloughed with no pay. I actually was part of a practice that went bankrupt during COVID. Despite that, I had patients that were being treated for cancer and I had to continue to treat them. And so I was showing up with greatly reduced pay. I mean, all of that was traumatic, right? And so I think that there was this um, realization among many physicians that um, where I think there was always this assumption that we had this very secure profession, like you're never going to starve with a physician's salary. But all of a sudden it's like, there's some security questions about being a physician. And so 
um, for me, discovering um, passive income through real estate um, and being able to decouple my physician income from um, or my income from from my work as a physician, um, that actually ironically made me enjoy medicine even more. So mm-hmm. when I could practice medicine on my own terms and have more autonomy and feel like I'm not a dancing monkey at the fair. Like if I stop dancing, um, money's going to stop rolling in, right? Um, I had to get to the point where I wasn't trading time for money anymore as a physician. I won, I've always wanted medicine to just be like my charitable gift to humanity more than rely on it as a paycheck. Um, and so as I, as I discovered real estate and I was able to, to do that and gain financial independence and medicine's like a bonus financially, I actually, I, I, it made me fall deeper in love with medicine again, despite kind of some of the trauma that I had during, during COVID. And so that's, that's been kind of the reason why I launched this Freedom Physician, um, because I see this burnout um, and because I see a way out for people. Um, so my, that's, that's my heart is to coach, coach physicians to, to decouple their income from, from, their, from their craft as physicians. I, being someone that's been so connected to the health industry. And if anyone listened to episode 45 with Nick, like we went deep into the health industry and you know how our current system is not set up to appropriately support many different levels. And so you yeah. saying that like hits it from such a different, deeper level that just gets me excited to hear what you're doing because if people are fulfilled by what they do, the value of their product goes up exponentially. Yeah. Right. And so I'm not saying that I just, I I think there's a lot of people that question current healthcare and the value of it based on the way the system is. But for you to be able to not make you be a dancing monkey, like you said, and like, I just, that gets me so excited that you're doing it. So I don't even think it's a question of if we need it, it we have to have that to be able to maybe shift perspective around some of these things to get people fulfilled again and get their time back so then they can go help more people. Cause ultimately that's what we all do in this world is help people. Yeah. I mean, I, I talk with a lot of physicians where really small differences in, in what they do on a day-to-day basis, I think would make all the difference in the world. You know, if they could say no to some overnight call, um, if they could, you know, just structure their, their life in a way that they could be, at their kids' performance at school, and, you know, just just like it's the small things that that they want, be able to have a little bit of autonomy back in the, in their life. But like, there's a lot of systemic control and physicians that's contributing to to some of this burnout. And so I think, you know, if you're financially free and you don't rely on medicine for your paycheck, you can take your autonomy back and and kind of do it on your own terms. So walk us through, like, tell us that story for you. So real estate was that the the, you know, the skull key that opened all the doors for you in the time? Was it that the passive income that got you to where you were? And like, what was that journey like? Because just a couple years ago, you started investing in real estate, right? Yeah, that's right. And yes, real estate is the vehicle, specifically commercial multifamily real estate um, is what really made all the impact for me. Um, And it was a like you said, it's something I didn't I didn't learn until just the last few years. Um, I think our country does a terrible job educating anyone really about financial um, savviness. Um, I mean, I got 
all the, but doctors in particular, like we're kind of in this bubble until our mid thirties or even up to 40, where you just kind of put your head down and you're, you're trying to get into medical school and then it's medical school and residency and fellowship. And, and then maybe you, you get that academic job like I did. And now you're climbing a different ladder of trying to become an assistant professor and a full professor and publish. And the last thing you're really thinking of is, um, or the last thing you're educated about is finances. I mean, I, at 37 years old, when I was finally done with, with residency, I didn't even know what a 401k was. I didn't know what a Roth IRA was. I didn't know what an HSA was. So like when I graduated um, and I paid off my student loans because I came to Alaska and I finally, I'm 40 years old and I have a net worth of zero for the first time, like that was an exciting moment. And it was also a moment where I was like, well, now I finally have some discretionary income for the first time in my life. What do I do with that? How do I plan for the future? And that's when I started learning these really basic things. And I started making smart decisions, you know, paid off the loans and started, you know, maximizing my 401k and opened a brokerage account and did all the things that, you know, you should be doing. Um, But I also had this plan that was going to put me um, in a very comfortable retirement, you know, 30 years later, (laughs) Um, which is fine. And um, but I went to this conference uh, in 2019 where I met physicians that um, were able to achieve financial independence really fast in just a few years, three years, five years. And I, it almost seemed too good to be true. Um, but the vehicle that, that they, that they did that with was with real estate. And as I looked around and then particularly as COVID hit, um, it came from something or it started, it started as something that I was interested in to becoming something that I must do. Like, I got to figure this out. If these guys are doing it. Like, I'm smart. I went through medical school. Like I, there's, I, I can figure this out. And so that, that's what I did. I just became passionate about real estate. That's incredible. And so uh, I've told some of the, the worst of the worst real estate stories. You know, obviously I don't, I'm not as prolific as what you did. And so I would love to hear like, because I think as great as it is, I think it's just so important to tell the failures, to tell the, the downsides because there is so many, right? And I think that if people can go into it prepared, if they can go into it um, counting all the cost, right? And and doing their prep work, I think that they're going to get the best outcome, right? So what are some of the major failures or just experiences that came through it that you are still such a fan of it, right? Because that's ours. Like I always use the example is we had a client or we had a tenant uh, pass away in one of our units. Right? Yeah. And experiencing that learning experience, Right. But I mean, I've gotten many people after even that terrible experience into real estate. Like it yeah. was a terrible thing. The skip, this fear, the scare, the family, like all of these things. I still recommend go buy a fourplex, right? Like, yeah. I mean, so like, what's yours? Oh, I could tell you a thousand. I mean, it's like we were talking about earlier. You have to be okay with those broken plates, right? right. Um, and so, real estate, particularly as you scale, if you want to be somebody that owns hundreds of units, you're going to have disaster stories almost every single day. I mean, I had a tenant recently that um, tried to drown herself in one of my units. And the way that she did that was she plugged the bathroom drain and let the water fill up the bathtub, flood her unit, (laughs) flood the unit beneath her, like cause massive damage to several units, right? I had a tenant leave, um, abandon the unit and they had a pet chinchilla that we didn't know about. I had no flipping idea how much damage a hungry chinchilla that's left in an apartment can do. This thing literally ate through doors, ate through drywall, destroyed the cabinets, ate through the electrical of our brand new stackable washer and dryer set that we'd put in for this tenant. 
Um, so many failures. My, my very first um, investment was an accidental investment. So we, we uh, lived in Philadelphia during our residency years and um, had five kids, limited, uh, limited income. I mean, as a resident, I was making like 45 grand a year. My wife didn't work. That's what we were living on in a very expensive city. But we bought this house um, because we needed to be in what we felt like was a safe neighborhood and a decent school district, which is hard to find in Philadelphia. Um, And we bought this house in 2008. And then the market crashed. And I graduated from residency in 2012. And despite having poured a lot of time and energy into personally renovating this home, we were underwater $150,000. Tried to sell it, couldn't sell it. Um, And so we became accidental landlords, um, long distance, first Florida and then from Alaska. And this thing was just a constant suck on our time and our energy. I mean, the rent didn't even cover the mortgage and renovations after renovations, tenant leaving town and having all the pipes burst literally in the walls of the home because the heat was off in the middle of the winter. Um, That was my first experience with what I thought was investment real estate. Um, I didn't realize that it's a completely different animal to deliberately vet out uh, an asset and not become an accidental landlord. But I kind of, I entered this whole thing with the mindset of, well, this doesn't work because we had had that terrible experience. Yeah, you're lucky that chinchilla wasn't snakes. Did you see that video on social media recently? No. Oh my gosh. If anyone's snakes, like I know my wife hates snakes and it's, I mean, this is totally random, but it's just, it's terrifying. It's like drop tile ceiling like this and you can see like this little like hook coming out and the person's hitting at it and the whole drop tile ceiling collapses and it's like a sea of snakes. I mean, it was just like, oh my gosh. And oh, just wow. like, we found out accidentally that one of our tenants, when we had to evict them, that we went in and it had a snake in a cage, like, and they left. And I was like, wow. what do we do with a snake? Awesome. Like, oh my gosh, like, can I just yeah. throw this in the trash? I don't know, like, is that bad? Oh man, it was, it was quite the experience. And so... You know, with that portfolio, that scale, you know, where, I mean, do you see like an end in sight or do you see a plan? Is it always real estate? Are you getting in like, because you're saying multifamily commercial, right? So are no like class B, class C storage units. It's just all doors, like landlord tenant situation is the the trajectory you're on, correct? Yeah, I have, um, once I started my real estate journey, I became, there's lots of ways to invest in real estate and lots of ways to make money in real estate. You can do Airbnb, you can do long-term rentals, you can do self-storage, but I'm a believer in choosing one strategy and becoming laser-focused on that. That's, at least that's how I've been successful. And in being laser-focused on one market, like I, I made it my goal, like I was going to focus on Alaska, I was going to focus specifically on Eagle River and Anchorage and maybe the Valley initially. And I wanted to know every single neighborhood, every single street. I wanted to know, you know, what is a 2-1 rent for versus a 1-1 or a 3-2? What kind of difference does granite or quartz countertop make with rent? Um, You know, just like really diving super deep into knowing what what things were going for uh, so that once I saw a deal... I would recognize it as a deal, right? And and knowing how to knowing how to analyze those numbers um, is is just really empowering, and that's what helps you make quick decisions. Because, um, you know, in making connections like with with Jonathan that you've had on this podcast, if you have an agent that calls you with an off market opportunity 
and you're not prepared to give them a quick answer, what's going to happen? They're going to offer it to the next person. And so my agents continue to, to funnel me deals because they know that I'm going to give them a quick answer. It's going to be a yes or a no. And if it's a good deal, I'm, I'm going to be ready to pounce on it. But my success has been um, with just that one strategy of multifamily and then scaling that to commercial multifamily. Yeah. So through all that analytical research that you did, what's probably one of the biggest takeaways that has allowed you to make a quick decision? What's that first thing? Is it the 1% rule? Like what for you is that like that quick decision factor that you've, you know, you've ran with? Yeah, I think 1% rule is a, is a great back of the envelope um, screening tool to screen properties. Um, and we're fortunate that in Alaska, we can still find properties that meet the 1% rule. I mean, in the lower 48, they're talking about the 0.5% rule right. now when, you know, four or five years ago it was the 2% rule. So things have changed a lot, but we're, I think we're in a great little bubble up here where totally. there are fantastic opportunities. Like the word hasn't quite gotten out yet on, on Alaska. So if you're out there and you're listening and you want to invest in, in real estate, like you're very fortunate to live in Alaska is, right. is my opinion. Um, but no, I mean, um, my, my approach is if, if there's a deal that seems like it makes sense initially, I'm going to lock it up. So I'm going to get it under contract right. and then I'm going to decide if I want it. Exactly. Right. So you want to get it off the market. Uh, and that's when you really start diving deeper, you know, getting the financials, running a true cash on cash calculation and then not being emotional about it. Mm-hmm. Like, um, I mentor a lot of people, a lot of friends, even that just want to get into real estate and we have this tendency to fudge the numbers if we really want it. So, you know, I have a really strict spreadsheet that I follow that, um, like, I'm always going to assume with a property, standard property management expenses, as a for instance. And I've sat down with numerous friends where they're like, yeah, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to self-manage, so I'm going to put a zero here. And that's like, do you want to be involved in this business forever? Or, like, do you want this to just be leveraged income or do you want it to be passive income? Because <laughs> if you want it to be passive income, you need to plan from day one, how am I going to replace myself in this business, right? Because like, that's how you're going to scale. So I try to really unemotionally evaluate every single property the same way. And it's just about developing a system to do that. There's lots of lots of good tools out there. There's lots of free um, free tools out there. There's great stuff on YouTube. You have great content. Um, but it's just about learning. I, I would say number one first tool to learn that will empower you to make decisions is how to how to run cash on cash calculations. Okay. Yeah, understand if I put this amount of money in, what's my return going to be? And being really crystal clear about what your goal is, right? So um, when I started, I said to Jonathan, hey man, I am looking for a small multifamily unit, one to four units in a class B or C neighborhood, um, about $100,000 per door with a cash on cash return of 10%. That was my spiel. And I said, if you find me that, I will buy it. And he found me that and other agents found me that. And so if you're really, really super clear and you're like, hey, I don't want to be on your mailing list for every single new listing, I want this. And especially if you can find this for me off market, I'm going to buy it. Yeah, I would agree. The cash on cash, knowing what your percent return is, is by far the most important thing. And I think the other part too is, is I talk to a lot of people that they don't like numbers or they're not good with math. And like the thing that I tell anyone is you as a person have to know the numbers because if you don't know the numbers, then it means you're relying on someone else to tell you the numbers. And it's just, it's incredibly important for you to at least know that for yourself. 
And so it's just, it's, it's, you can't go into it lazy, right? You, I mean, you're talking in extreme intentionality, which is just such an important part of it. And so I love that. So I got to, you know, and this is always kind of a shout out and we can go as far as you want with this, but like, I can only imagine, right. That wife, five kids, all these things, how important is it? The core, the core foundation of your family. Like she's part of this and you, right. Doing that is like, talk to me about that relationship. Right. Cause I love my wife and I do business together. We own the gym together and I love it, you know, and I know it's not for everyone, but talk to me how solid and how, what, what that has meant for you guys as you guys have been doing this. Yeah. There's a yin and a yang for sure. And I, I gotta say, it's not like we're both always passionate about it all the time. Like I'm way more passionate about real estate than she is. And she tempers me in that way. That's and good, so, though. so that's, that's great. Um, but I think that having, having core values, um, that you can return to. And when you do have an opportunity, um, examine, does this meet my core values? You know, um, I early on, I developed a, a vision board. Um, actually, that was like, you know, I had my mission statement. Here's exactly what I'm looking for. So I'm looking for this type of property. And then I had my vision of why. Um, so my long term goals, like why am I investing in real estate and uh, pictures that actually what what is financial freedom going to mean for me? And that is so important because you have to have this totally magnetic, purposeful why so that when the chinchilla eats through your doors and you have somebody try to drown themselves, like you don't give up in that moment because those are the moments where you're going to want to, just like quitting in, in your sleeping bag, right? So yeah. you have to start off with this super powerful why to push you through those moments. Yeah, and you have to take the time and define it, right? Like like you're talking about and, and sit down in a dark room and just map it out no matter what because if you don't, you're going to get lost along the way right? yeah. or you're going to lose that purpose and I agree with that wholeheartedly. I know that Chelsea and I did the exact same thing. I always tell people like if you have a goal physically, right? If it's the next mountain that you're going to climb or, you know, the marathon you're going to run or the weight that you're going to be is you have to surround yourself with that vision, right? Totally. Like, like I, I think a great example and what I used to do for every one of my clients and they hated it. It was like, okay, so you want to be a certain like physique. Show me the physique. I don't care what it is. Okay. You got to put it at the, the backup. It has to be the background on your phone. Yeah. It's got to be the background on your desktop or your computer. You got to put it on the dash of your car. You got to see it everywhere it goes because it's almost impossible to set that goal down if you see it everywhere you go. That's great advice. And so I love that. And it's, it's amazing having that yin and yang, you know, with the, the relationship. I know that I agree completely to that, you know, having that power partner in that is super important. You said that you and your family have core values. Do you, you want to share any of that or like, you know, specific to your guys' family? Yeah, I think, um, you know, on my, on my vision board, uh, what I have is my core values, which are kind of the foundation. It's things like service, things like generosity. So I, I want to see my, I want to see everything that I do um, professionally, investment, um, not as some greedy thing where I'm going to get a return, but I, but I also want to see it as service, right? Like I, I love renovating properties. We bought a, a tenplex in Midtown in this like. <laughs> Maybe it's maybe it's Glass C, um, uh, but it was this opportunity to go in and like 
beautifully renovate and create this new living space. And, and we've done the same thing in Fairbanks where uh, we bought this 72 plex that's right next to the military base. Um, this thing's been neglected for 60 years. Um, and to be able to provide beautiful, brand new, renovated housing for our military soldiers, like I don't see it just as an investment, but it's really gratifying to to be able to serve in that way. And so um, that's what I mean. It has to meet my my core values, being generous. You know, um, I look for opportunities to, I, I try to find ways to say yes. If people hit me up uh, to support a cause, um, you know, it's, it, I'd have to have a really strong reason to say no. So like, I want to, I want to be generous. I want to focus on my family. Um, so those are the types of things that are on, on my core value list. Yeah. So some of ours are, uh, we do hard things is a phrase Love that we it. say many times, obviously with the hard phrase earlier, uh, maximum effort, which is just like, you know, if you're going to do something, do it all out, you know, cause there's not worth it. Anything else. Um, the other one is people over profit. You know, oh, so we'll always great. put people over a profit, you know, that's with our rentals, that's with, you know, our employees, you know, during COVID paying them, even though no money was coming in, just constantly serving that that served us really, really well. Um, and the last one is that just, it's just so important to us is, um, I don't know why I just lost it. I, I completely lost it, but I'll come back that's to okay. it. But there's four of them and yeah. I don't know where that last one came in. So I guess some of the things that, you know, are just kind of want to wrap up here and, uh, talk about is like, what's, what's the single best piece of advice that you've ever been given, you know, and I threw all these things, but if you were to like put one to the top, what would it be? <sighs> Can I give you two? Sure. Um, I would say well, I, I mean, one's fresh on my brain because I just read this book. I'm blanking on the name, but it's by the CEO of Disney, uh, Robert Iger. Yep. Um, and he talks about how important it is to say yes. Um, and um, like, I just think that 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 is we we talked about kind of the story in our brain and and the mindset and what we're telling ourselves like um if we let's say you have this opportunity to buy an apartment complex but you feel like well, how am i going to finance that or or i can't finance that or i don't have the capital like you're telling yourself all the reasons you can't do it but instead of you're looking at that apartment complex you know it's a really phenomenal opportunity and it's one that could set you financially free and you have that opportunity. I don't know if you've ever played that cash flow game by um, Robert Kiyosaki. He actually has this board go, yep. board game. And it teaches you to how to get out of the rat race. And you like you get these cards, almost like Monopoly. And you're waiting for an opportunity like that to hit you, so that you can get out of the rat race. Like it's such a great game to play. But instead of like saying, "Well, I can't do that right now because of X, Y, Z." finding a way to say yes. Like if you're not saying "How can I?" questions, then you're not thinking of things like, "Well, could I?" arrange a seller financing win-win with this person or could I bring in a partner or so asking how can I and saying yes I think that's number one for me because that just puts you in the right mindset to pounce on every every possible opportunity like we just have this this tendency to um, suffocate the baby if you will whether it's a business opportunity that could um, could grow into this wonderful thing um, uh, we 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 select ourselves out before we even give the opportunity to grow. Um, so that is one. And then the other, um, <laughs> 10 years ago, uh, when I was thinking of moving to Alaska and chasing this dream of doing the Iditarod, um, I was actually debating between two job opportunities at the time. And one was this really cool opportunity to go to um, Vienna, Austria, and work for the United Nations, 
they they had approached me because of my success with this Radiating Hope nonprofit. And um, it was a very low-paying job, but it was an opportunity to do exactly what my heart was in medicine. I talked about how I just want it to be like my charitable gift to humanity. And they wanted me to lead up um, uh, implementing radiation throughout Africa, which is exactly what I was trying to do. Um, Or I had this opportunity to chase this dream, pay off my student loans, come to Alaska. Um, And I went to this friend um, who was very successful in business. He actually just sold his company for several hundred million last year. And I went to him and I outlined these two opportunities. And, And I was like, dude, what do you think I should do? And he's like, do you really want my opinion? And I said, yes. And uh, he's like, okay. I, he's like, keep in mind, I'm a capitalist. And he said, you go to Alaska and you take the money and you put yourself in a position so that he's like, you could have a contribution now um, or you can have an even greater contribution later. If you can get to the point, um, I think that, that, that people sometimes have the tendency to look at people who have lots and lots of money and resources that their that their intentions for doing that um, aren't very pure, but but his advice was if you can get to the point of maximum wealth in your life, then you're also going to be at a point of maximum ability to to contribute, maximum contribution, and I think that that was really good advice and and has served me well, and I'm so glad I listened to him. Yeah, I think I think stories, right? Kind of almost wrapping it up to something we were talking about in the beginning is people tell themselves stories about money about other people who have money, about maybe a chance for them to get money, and they demonize this thing, money. But I have the only thing that I truly believe is money is a magnifying glass. Mm. That is it. It is a magnifying glass at who you are at the core. So if you have extreme good that you want to do, and the more money you have, the more good you will go do. That's not to say that there are people that have bad cores and they do bad things with it. But the people that I've met, like the people you're talking about yourself, is the more they get, the more they give, right? And it's not just money. It's time. It's energy. It's resources. And that all becomes a major, major ripple effect. Yeah. That's one thing that I talk to my coaching clients about is we talk about what are your long-term goals? And they'll outline, well, I want to start a nonprofit or I want to you know, volunteer in this way or I want to donate to this. And someday when I get to that point and I have all this money, that's what I want to do. And then we return to, well, what are you doing to make that happen right now? You may not have the resources, but it's like you want to scale that later, but you also want to be that person right now. Right. Because right. it's not like it's going to magically change later. Right. You yeah. have to be that now. And whatever you're doing, it's building off into the next, right? We talked about that earlier. So, well, Larry, I just, I have to thank you so much. This conversation was riveting beyond belief. I don't oh, know thanks. if there's any other thoughts or th- things that you wanted to get out today while you had to hear. I just, I, I would leave that to you, you know, if you have anything else. It's been great, man. I've really, really enjoyed being here. Thanks for asking me to be a part of it. Yeah, I'm grateful and I, I hope that you'll come back again sometime. Yeah, you bet. All right, man. Okay, right on. Yep.